Okay, so this morning we are looking at what I find a very interesting topic, um, the relationship between marriage and the civil law, the law of the government, the law of the state. Um, so there are a few basic points I want us to absorb. Um, and I want us, you know, one of the challenges in this is to make ourselves think like Catholics, not to think like Republicans or Democrats or if you're British or Tory or Labour supporter or Liberal Democrats or um, to think like Catholics um, and to see where marriage needs to sit in terms of government policy and that the government does have a role but we also don't believe in state um, dictatorship with the state running it. So you all had my email asking you to read those three particular pages. Um, basically there's more here than we can go through all in one lecture. Those three pages were all different quotes from church documents, hopefully kind of refreshing your mind on some of these points. So you've all done the church's social teaching in a course on social teaching, yes? So in a sense, those aspects of the principles shouldn't be new. But in terms of crystallizing it, in terms of where that sits, marriage and social teaching, marriage and the law of the state, that's really what I want our focus to be today. So let's start going through my lecture notes um, on page one. So start making a point, um, just as a matter of history, that we can see that traditionally every human culture has publicly recognised man-woman unions. That such unions aren't private, they affect others. So at the very minimal level, they affect others in that that means if she's married to him, I can't go after her anymore. You know, that they, a union affects everybody else. Now, say in societies with developed legal systems, that public recognition takes legal form. I say further because good government recognises that marriage serves the common good of society, governments have typically made legal provisions assisting marriages. For example, tax breaks for married couples. And I want to start by noting what I've called our modern American problem with this issue um, in terms of what can prevent us thinking like Catholics because of the political culture we're in. So before considering this in any detail, we need to consider, recall, the purpose of government and how it relates to the common good of society. And I know that there are two factors that make it difficult to view this objectively for us. And I don't know from your African backgrounds how much this is going to be completely different, but um, I'm lecturing in America, so this is where I'm going to start my focus. Um, so two factors. First, I say American libertarianism views all government as, at best, a necessary evil. And I say, in reality, the redcoats are coming isn't contemporary uh, anymore as a basis for how you should establish government. But it is still in the background of viewing government as a problem. That's, in a sense, America's origin. Government was a problem. 
Second, I say, and this I think is possibly an even bigger problem, 20th century communism has given us many horrific examples of evil governments. I say that government as a concept shouldn't be judged on the basis of abuses of government. And kind of linked with that, 21st century fears of a LGBT, QI, whatever, agenda-driven governments opposing Catholic institutions, well, similarly, that's not a basis for opposing all governments. But if we think of our own kind of cultural prejudices, fear of big government is part of what is in us, and therefore that stops us being able, or makes it difficult to think of government as a good thing. So then, quotes from two politicians, um, Ronald Reagan's line, um, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. So, um, so these words stand as a judgment against excessive government interference in people's lives. But I say those words don't stand as a suitable Catholic comment on all government. Kind of in parallel, Margaret Thatcher's words, that same era, I don't know if this side of the Atlantic you'd be as familiar with, but this phrase, there's no such thing as society. Um, so she used these words as a critique of blaming all your personal problems. Well, it's all society's fault. Um, those words were also a critique of the kind of socialist tendency to equate community with big government. So someone should do something about this, meaning big government should do something about this. And I say, okay, well, maybe that's a critique of big government, maybe that's a critique of communism, but that doesn't mean, you're in Catholic thinking, I say, that community and government aren't the same thing, but that doesn't mean they're not related, that one shouldn't be serving the other. So at the risk of undermining my sermon this morning, um, having expressed too much party politics, I'm trying to purify our minds as Catholics so we can look at this question without party politics, without our the cultural problems that we've inherited colouring our ability to see the way it should be, it could be, it's supposed to be. that serve as a way of introduction? So the next two pages in the notes here, you've already had a chance to read through. So these are either quotes from the Catechism or they're quotes from the Compendium of Social Doctrine. Are you all familiar with that as a document? So it's a bigger fat there, Brian's holding us copy for us all. Um, it's bigger and fatter than the Catechism. It's a big document, um, pulling together lots of different sources. Um, as a compendium, it's not, it doesn't have authority the way the Catechism has authority. It's, its authority draws from the authority of the bits it's pulling together. Yeah? 
terms of how we as Catholics read it. But it, I think it's a useful document in all the things it pulls together. So the point is, you know, there is this thing called the common good. We aren't just isolated individuals. That we are supposed to participate in this common good. So although the church doesn't promote democracy as the only way of existing, actually democracy does in many ways further what the church talks about in terms of participation in the common good. Um, it gets you to be involved in the community, involves in other people. But this thing called government, why is it there? It's there because the common good needs a defender, the common good needs an enabler. And so the Catechism says every human community needs an authority, it's the role of the state to develop and promote the common good of civil society. And that can be hard to remember if the only examples we think we're seeing are examples of the government doing the opposite. But the government, it is there for a good purpose. That's why we have government. Subsidiarity, you've all been through that principle in your social doctrine, that a, a higher level authority shouldn't interfere with the running of a lower level if the lower level is able to do its job. Um, most pivotally, the state shouldn't interfere with the family in as much as the family is able to do its job by itself. But um, the family does actually need in all kinds of things the support of the family. So we need the support of the family to protect us from the Canadians or whoever's going to invade. Um, So, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the Clinton administration, but under Clinton, Hillary Clinton had this um, phrase, it takes a village, yes? Um, that what does it take to raise a child? Not just a family, it takes a village. And the kind of critique of that was, it takes a police state to, to raise children. Um, and there is this real fear that actually when certain government authorities are talking about it needs a village, it's actually an excuse to impose secular ideologies on children and an, an excuse to stop Christian parents raising their children as good Christians. So I'm guessing you've all read, you know, through the COVID lockdowns, you know, one of the secular critiques and complaints and concerns about the lockdown was that it meant children were growing up with no influence but their parents. Mm -hmm. You know, no influence that the state wasn't able to plug its secular agenda into the forming of the children. So the government should be there to support the family, but subsidiarity means actually if the family can do its job, the government shouldn't be interfering, shouldn't be uh, undermining it. 
and that the family is a great quote there from the catechism the original cell of family life uh, of social life you know what is everything else in society built on the cell of the family and as goes the family so goes society for good or for ill So I've, I've bashed the Republicans, I've bashed the Democrats, I'm trying to be even-handed here. Um, any comments before we move on to something particular? So what I want to do next is to think more particularly, um, how do we therefore structure civil law? What is the basis of civil law, the law of the government? So if we turn on to page I ask the question, what is the basis of civil law? And I note three possible answers at the top there. Um, so the book you read um, by Brian Benstead, um, he refers to consensus. What is law? It's supposed to reflect what society agrees to. Most people think this, therefore that's what the law says. Another way of looking at what is law is to say it's power. So kind of the Marxist critique, um, everything is about power, power of one group against another. Um, so that what is law, it's nothing but the assertion of one group over another. The assertion of those with power over those without power. Now probably the most sophisticated notion of law is the third option, a contract. That law is nothing more than a group contract by society. I remember arguing with a lawyer um, on this point. Um, and he thought this was a wonderfully tidy way of defining what law is. That, you know, lawyers deal with contracts all the time. What is law? It's just a big group contract. Now, the problem, as I say then, is is that none of those three options manages to articulate the purpose of law. Okay, you've said it's an agreement, you've said it's a consensus, but what's its purpose? What's it supposed to achieve? And that's where St. Thomas's notion of reason and the common good are pivotal. And I think the real thing is that the next point, that none of the above, none of those three, offer a basis to judge a law to be in unjust law. I think pretty much everyone we talk to would think there is such things as laws that are unjust, laws that are bad laws. Well, the instant you said it's a bad law, an unjust law, well, what's your criteria? What are you looking down from to say law is bad? Because if everybody's agreed to it, how can you say it's a bad thing if that's what you think law is? If it's a contract and Congress has passed it and agreed it, well, how can you say it's bad if Congress has done just that? And yet, I think pretty much everybody knows there are such things as bad laws. So what's the criteria? Well, here I'm gonna run us through St. Thomas's definition of law. Um, 
So if you go through the Catechism, uh, it was alluded to in your reading as well, a little more indirectly, but you can see the sections of the Summa I've um, taken this from, but he defines law as I say that. It's an ordinance, which means it's a decree issued by an authority of reason for the common good made by those who have care of the community and promulgated. And if any one of those elements is lacking, then a law isn't a law. Yes, how any philosopher, how St. Thomas would define anything. If it lacks one of those bits, it's not a law. So let's just pull those points apart one by one. So first, A, civil law must be an ordinance of right reason, as St. Thomas would put it. I, it must be based on the natural law. So, quoting or following St. Thomas's logic, I then say, what is law? He says it's a subsection of reason. That reason directs human actions to their end. That's what your brain is doing all the time. It's directing your activity. Now, law directs human acts to their end with the addition of a binding command. Yes, so it, it's not just the intellect reason, there's a command that goes with it, and that's what makes a law a particular aspect, a subsection of reason. And so it follows that a law contrary to reason is ipso facto not a true law. Then quote Russell Hissinger, I think I've got um, Robert George in the footnotes there as well, um, who you know, big natural law theorists, um, big law theorists, saying human laws, human laws, determine the euro, the justice, left indeterminate by natural law. So for example, natural law says that theft is sinful positive law, state law, establishes how these are to be punished. And so there are lots of different ways you could punish thieves. There are lots of ways you could exactly define theft and define punishment. Um, that's the job of state law, civil law. But it is a specification, a determination of what's already present in the natural so say, note the authority of a specific positive law thus derives from, one, its connection to the natural law and to its determination by a valid authority. Does that follow pretty simply? So that law isn't a random thing. It's a thing of reason. It's got to be grounded in reason, but a specification in a particular context by the authority. Okay, B, um, the need for authority in civil laws. So first I ground this in scripture, uh, revelation and obedience to the church, the civil authority. Jake, could, could you read those two <coughs> quotes for us? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
fear God and honor the emperor. And if you remember when that was being written, the emperor was a pagan. The emperor had all kinds of laws that were, you know, very much not Christian laws. But even in that context, the epistles are telling us um, the authority is there from God to serve the common good, to serve society, and therefore to obey it. Now we'll come on to when to disobey, when to oppose, when there's an unjust law, but first the general starting point of the appropriateness of authority. So I say, according to reason, there's, so that's according to the Bible. Well, what, according to reason, I say there's a twofold need to, for authority and civil laws in our nature. So first, man's nature is a social the coordination requires an authority and laws to coordinate. Secondly, man's nature has fallen. So the effects of original sin incline us to personal sin. And so positive laws by the state are a threat of punishment for breaking the natural law. So laws punishing theft, laws punishing murder. Because of the effects of original sin, we need that aspect of good government. So in summary, I say obedience to civil laws is thus a matter of, of first divine revelation and natural law. And some examples of morally obligatory obedience, well, I say tax laws. So honesty in completing tax forms. You know, the state has a right to collect taxes. It has a right to collect the right amount of taxes. If we're cheating on our tax returns, uh, I think Pope Francis had this in one of his documents, this is you know, a matter of sin. Traffic laws. So um, you know, speed limits are put there by the government for a reason, to serve the common good, to protect the driver, to protect others from the driver. So Pope Benedict said there's a constant duty to drive carefully and with a sense of responsibility. So at what speed do, does breaking the speed limit become a sin? Well, I think you can say that in the mind of the legislator, because uh, that's the criteria of what does a law mean, you interpret it according to what the intention of the lawgiver was. In the mind of the legislator, in most countries, as far as I'm aware, there's kind of a wiggle room in, in the number. Um, so it doesn't mean that going five above or whatever is automatically a matter of sin, but whatever the wiggle room is in the mind of a legislator, that's where sin would kick in. So in the UK, for example, the speed limit on a motorway is 70, but we all know the police won't pull you over unless you're going over 80. So there's a kind of built-in wiggle room there. Um, the mind of the legislator. Um, so my point is, it's not just a fear of getting caught that should motivate us, particularly as priests and our examples, um, but a matter of sin. Okay, C. Civil law should be ordered to the common good. 
So civil authority and its laws exist to serve the common good of society. And that's where you know, it comes back to the quotes you've read previously. But just I've pulled out to repeat from the catechism about the family. The political community has a duty to honour the family, to assist it, and to ensure especially the freedom to establish a family, have children, and bring them up in keeping with the family's own moral and religious convictions. The protection of the stability of the marriage bond and the institution of the family. The freedom to profess one's faith and to hand it on and raise one's children in it, in, in the faith. And the freedom to form associations with other families and so have representation before civil authority. So if the civil law isn't doing that, if it's not serving the common good in that way of serving the family, then it's failing Thomas's definition. Indeed, every law must be promulgated. So, as I say there, law doesn't just indicate right and wrong the way reason would teach. Law actually commands. Um, so, I'm following Suarez on this point. God does not merely point and observe it's wrong to steal, rather he commands thou shalt not steal. So, if a law hasn't gone through the proper process, again, that's another reason why it's not a real law, and why you would then have a dictator rather than a proper law. Okay, so that's taken us through kind of the definition of law. Any comments, observations thus far? Yeah. Uh, mine is uh, connected to family. Uh, under, under section C, uh, freedom to establish a family. Freedom for community habits. Um, just keeping in mind that the political community, the government has no right to define what sort of family there should be or what kind of marriage people should be involved in. Um, so the, this sense of freedom to establish a family that when we are having problems like people are trying to establish all sorts of families according to their own consciences that it's not that the state um, defined what sort of marriage or family it should be or fostering that freedom that people should come up with all kinds of family they want. Um, so I, I think my question goes more into the marriage uh, family stuff. But in, in the example that you have people, you have gay couples, you have um, same-sex people want to marry, want to have a family. And the state 
is saying that they will have to ensure the freedom that these people establish their family. Uh, but the state doesn't say you are not supposed to start that family because it's contrary. So the family should come up according to what people think, and then the state protects that, or the state says, okay, this is the criteria for the family in marriage, and we're going to defend that. So how, how this freedom to establish a family, should the state pay much more attention what people are establishing or the state or can also define and that's making those it's okay. Certain families okay. Or certain families aren't really families. Yeah. yeah, so kind of implicit in that, actually that quotation from the catechism doesn't actually say what a family is it's not spelled out there so that's somehow something that needs to be specified before that can in a sense have any meaning can we come back to that example in a sure. bit because that's the pivotal test case that our reading focused on um, I'd imagine when the catechism was writing it was probably more aware so under the era when half the world or a third of the world was under communism, there were various attempts by communist states to stop the family, because the family was this thing where people were being raised without the state managing to indoctrinate them under communism. So there are different ways of the state trying to stop that parental influence. Um, I'd imagine that's the freedom to form the family the catechism is, is coming out of, rather than the question that's more our immediate context that, that you're flagging up, which is actually, well, what is a family? That we need to define that first. And the related question is, can reason tell us what a family is, or do we need the Bible? Because St. Thomas's whole definition here is rooting in reason. So if actually we can't define a family with respect to reason, then actually all the rest of this is then not really very useful. So reason and the common good. Okay, let's look at page six, um, which is really kind of where we're needing to end up focusing this. The question of unjust laws. So given a definition from St. Thomas, what is a law? You know, the general criteria, if something fails the definition, then it's not a law. Well, what is it then? So we have this concept, unjust laws. So I say there at the top, a civil law is only a true law in as much as it conforms to reason, i.e. to the natural moral law. And then in bold, an unjust law is not a law, but an act of violence. That's a very powerful term. As I footnote there, 
that's in the Catechism, it's in St. Thomas, it's in St. Augustine, this is um, Pope John XXIII, it's in one of his encyclicals. Um, it's a repeated phrase used by the church. What is an unjust law? It's an act of violence. So those who have the power are imposing this. That is an act of violence against those on whom it's being imposed. So what would make something an unjust law? Well, St. Thomas breaks down various ways a human ordinance can be unjust. And that's basically what I've mapped out on that page. So first, it's unjust because it opposes the human good as opposed to the divine good. So first, ex fine, laws that aren't at the proper end. They're aimed at a private good, not the common good. So I give the example there. Civil laws ordered to protect private goods. For example, to protect the rich or to protect special interest groups like trade unions in such a way as not to be ordered to the common good are thus abuses of the purpose of authority. So Trump or Biden's son, um, they pass some law, they make some regulation that is helping out their buddies. That is then a law not serving the common good, but serving the private good. Now, tax breaks for the rich. Does that serve the common good, or is that just serving the president's buddies? Now, there is an argument that in good economics, tax breaks for the rich actually make the economy healthy and therefore serve the common good. Now, if that's true, then it's not actually serving a special interest group. It's serving the common good. In parallel, special legal protections for trade unions. Now, trade unions, on one level, are a special interest group, but on another level, you know, the, all the mediating structures, you don't just have government and the individual. Groups like trade unions somewhere in between are there to serve groups, serve, therefore, the common good. But sometimes those groups get so much power that actually they undermine the common good of society. And that's the measure, that's the point. The, the, the measure of whether this particular regulation, this particular law, fails this criteria in terms of its end, the female. Is, is it serving the common good? Secondly, exhortatory, the laws enacted by one who has usurped authority. So this, you know, in this country, that's why you then have an appeal to the courts or an appeal to the Supreme Court to test, has this governor, has this mayor exceeded their authority? If they have, it's an unjust law. Exforma, laws that unjustly distribute benefits and burdens. So in each of these above three scenarios, the ordinance does not bind, as St. Thomas's phrase, because it does not match the definition of law. It opposes the human good. Now laws can also, as I say there, oppose the divine good. 
subordinates commanding things directly contrary to the, the divine law are unjust. A couple examples. One, if an emperor passes a law requiring sacrifice to idols, then the law does not bind, because it's unjust on grounds of opposing the divine good. Now, obviously in history, those were the laws of ancient Rome. Those were unjust laws. They opposed the divine good. Second example, if a king and his parliament pass a law changing the number of sacraments and forbidding the celebration of what had previously been called sacraments, then the law does not bind. It's an unjust law on grounds of the positive divine law from Jesus concerning the seven sacraments. So in England, that was the law after the Protestant Edward VI. Um, lots of examples where you might think well, how could a government oppose the divine good? Well, actually, in history, it happens again and again. The government trying to interfere with people's religious freedoms. And then third example, our COVID-19 scenario. Government COVID regulations on the celebration of the sacraments, I'd say, have seriously risked exceeding the state's just authority. And, you know, that's why we've had different bishops, different cardinals, voicing different opinions, but there's an issue here. I say good examples have seen bishops legislating after consulting with the state, rather than the state itself telling the church what to do. And I do notice as an example from history, the great St. Charles Borromeo, Bishop of Milan, you know, he closed all of his churches for two years to fight a plague. So, you know, the, there are examples in history of the lockdown closing of sacraments that we've seen. There aren't many, but there are examples. So, two ways a law can be unjust. It opposes the human good, or it opposes the divine good. If it fails either of those, it's not a real law, it's an act of violence. So at the bottom there, two contemporary test cases, two of many, I suppose, but first, Laws requiring Catholic adoption agencies to place children in the care of same-sex couples. Or laws requiring Catholic judges or justices of the peace um, to officiate at same-sex unions. I'm presuming you've had plenty of test cases over here on that. So if the law requires or permits same-sex marriage, it pretty much also requires the judges who would officiate at marriages to perform the same-sex marriages as well as heterosexual marriages. So what does that do to the status of a Catholic judge in that scenario who then suddenly has a same-sex couple presented to them? What, are they, what is the law requiring? So I see in those two examples, I say these and related laws would seem, you know, both to oppose the human good, because they oppose the common good, and to oppose the divine good by opposing God's positive laws on marriage. Okay, let's pause and give you a chance to comment. So you've all had a chance to read page seven, yes? So this is from the CDF in 2003. So this was before same-sex marriages became law. 
but when the church could see this was the whole trajectory things were heading in. So what are the key points here that the church is, that document's trying to make? So when our Protestant friends are thumping their Bibles and saying, you know, we can't have this as a law because it's against the Bible. Yes, there are kind of our political friends, but they're not using our argument, which would be to say, actually, there's something, even if you don't have the Bible, just grounded in human nature, there's something there. Uh, <coughs> Very emphatic on calling upon Catholics to resist these laws, especially politicians. Yeah. Catholic politicians make sure that these laws don't pass, and if they happen to pass, do their best to reverse them as much as they can. Yeah. Yeah, I've got some comments on the position of Catholic legislators later in the notes, but... And that, of course, is one of our big struggles when our, our public Catholic politicians are actually doing something different from Catholic thinking. observations when I when I was reading all of those posts and the uh, church state and society what I what I almost kind of wonder is if some of the, the issues couldn't be avoided by taking the French approach or I think it's actually most of continental Europe of simply separating marriage in the church from civil marriage so like in France if you want the state to recognize you as married, you have to have a civil ceremony that's apart from your church wedding because religious ministers don't have the authority to marry anyone in the eyes of the state. And, like, I mean, you can say that's an issue because, like, this is saying politicians should resist that and all that, but, like, to me it has a benefit because it keeps the state out of the church. 
so it kind of avoids conflict like that. Like Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, who's actually a practicing Catholic, is a very strong supporter of this because he says, you know, the system as we have it in France, it actually protects the church from coercion by the state by simply keeping it separate. So I don't know, I guess my question is, what are your thoughts on that approach, like the continental European approach to marriage law? Yes, I think certainly, I don't know the rest of Europe, but I know you're right about France. Um, and so in the UK, there have been a number of church figures that have, to some extent, suggested going down that route. Um, it works as a safeguard for the church. It then kind of washes our hand of the common good that we're going to do the right thing um, and you're going to make a mess of things and destroy society, but we're going to have our little bubble. Um, sorry, using the word bubble differently now. Um, but, um, so I suppose that would be my reservation. That actually... Just, just a short reaction. Isn't this document, you know, along what James was saying, seeming to imply that the issue of what the family is and what marriage is, more specifically what marriage is, is not a church issue, per se. Is that oversimplifying it? No, it's exactly, yeah. So it's, it's a reason issue. And saying what reason says, yeah. So in your observation about that is? You're right. So if the church is so quick to ad advocate, you know, Defending that definition, that's very dangerous. And on one hand, it can seem like, well, we'll protect ourselves by going down that route, but actually, we don't just exist to protect ourselves. And certainly, when in this country, you're still a powerful enough voice to actually influence the public then you have a duty to try and do that. Sorry. Yeah, it, it seems like the French system and then what the CDF is saying in this document are sort of at odds with each other. Because if marriage is a matter of the common good, and the French system would seem to separate, or at least from any of the church's responsibility, it separates those two. So it's almost the church's, like you said, abandoning the as if we're consenting to that marriage doesn't really have anything to do with it or or the state is not concerned with the common good or the church is, is somewhere, someone's not concerned with the common good and that people pick up on that. Then it seems that the church defends herself, you know, within her interior life and especially defends her ministers but does not defend the lady who are living out those roles as justices and people who would yes. be responsible for performing the ceremonies. There's all of a sudden little civil justification for them not to fully agree to exercise what the state tells them to do. Mm. Okay, let's shift the focus slightly yeah. over the page. I don't think I asked you to read this, but um, So this is from the same, no, same era, but a different document. 
Um, mm. The recognition of what are called de facto unions is comparable to marriage. Mm. So just to state the obvious, what is that there are couples, you know, men and women together that aren't in a marriage, that choose not to get married, but they say, well, we want the same tax breaks that those married people have. We're living together. We're a couple. Why shouldn't we get the same benefits that they get? And this is what the church is commenting on here. Um, Jacob, would you mind reading that text for us? Through public recognition of de facto unions, an asymmetrical juridical framework is established, where society would take on obligations toward the partners in a de facto union, they in turn would not take on the essential obligations to society that are proper to marriage. With regard to the recent legislative attempts to make the family and de facto unions equivalent, including homosexual unions, which is good to keep in mind that their juridical recognition is the first step towards their equivalency, Members of Parliament should be reminded about their grave responsibility to oppose them. For lawmakers, and in particular Catholic members of Parliament, should not favor this type of legislation with their vote because it is contrary to the common good and the truth about man, and thus truly unjust. These legal initiatives present, present all the characteristics of nonconformity to the natural law, which makes them incompatible with the dignity of the law. Wherever the family is in crisis, the society falters. The family has a right to be protected and promoted by society, as many constitutions in force in states around the world, around the whole world, recognize. So here's this couple, they're not married, and they you know, understandably say, well, it's not fair. Um, and in particular, the scenario that I've heard most forcefully presented is when someone dies. Um, and then again, I've had this presented with same-sex couples. So, you know, two men are living together. Um, one of them dies and the other doesn't inherit everything the way they would in a marriage. Well, those inheritance rights are there because marriage is serving the common good. That we don't give those inheritance rights to, to anybody. And if we do give them to anybody, which is what de facto unions would suggest, and is the book kind of extrapolates, well, then you could have that between any random two friends, that they just make an agreement. And then what that means is that actually, by extending that marriage benefit to everybody, you've taken it away from marriage. And you've no longer privileged the family. You've no longer said, actually, we're going to serve the common good by having this place where children can be raised. So that if everybody gets a benefit, families don't. Okay, let's move on. Um, okay, briefly, page nine. I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. Um, so there is an unjust law. What's our responsibility before it? Do you... Take up your Second Amendment rights, get out your gun, and go and shoot the governor. Yeah. So, response. <laughs> so, what's our response? Three principles. I start with at the top of the page. First, authority does not derive its legitimacy from itself. Second, blind obedience 
doesn't suffice to excuse. See, but disobedience can sometimes cause circumstantial evils that imply obedience is preferable. So I'm not going to obey the law because I think it's a law, but I am going to obey it because by disobeying it, I just cause more evil than my obedience cause. So that's the logic St. Thomas is concerned with and that the church documents have kind of amplified down the ages. Now in that scenario, let's say here, unjust laws don't bind the conscience. They don't bind as a law. Citizens are obliged in conscience to refuse obedience to unjust laws, but I say citizens should continue to serve the common good in other matters and to obey the civil authorities in other matters. So if I say Obama has passed the law for same-sex marriage, therefore I can break the speed limit, because government's bad, yeah? Well, um, in other matters, I should continue to obey the legitimate authority. So when should I obey an unjust law? This is this next section I'm basically unpacking St. Thomas's analysis of what he gives. So the law is unjust, but there's sometimes when I should obey it anyway. He says to avoid scandal, to avoid civic disturbance, to avoid inflicting a more grievous hurt. He said for which cause a man should even yield his right, according to Matthew 5. If a man take away your coat, give him your cloak as well. So he doesn't have a right to your coat, but... Um, but in any of the cases listed above, the unjust law per se does not bind the conscience. If the law binds, it binds per accidents, i.e. due to the effects of one's disobedience of the law. Now, what would be scandal or disturbance, to use St. Thomas's terms? Well, I say, for example, if one's disobedience would cause the public to lose confidence in what is otherwise generally a just legal system. But St. Thomas adds, however, laws contrary to the divine law, which includes the Ten Commandments, he says it must nowise be observed. I give two examples there. Uh, you know, from my own country, Elizabethan laws in 16th century England required you to take an oath denying the sovereignty of the Pope. Well, under no circumstances can you take that. It is an unjust law. I can't justify taking, following it on those criteria. Then more recently, Nazi laws requiring the genocide of the Jews. Here we have something... Um, that I can't in any circumstances say this is a law unjust but I'll follow it. Blind obedience does not excuse. Uh, um, I was uh, concerning uh, the obedience of the law. Um, I was like, what about um, if um, whether I obey that unjust law like or I disobey to the unjust law like there will be a scandal 
he sent it recommended probably to disobey if would end up to a less scandal so I think basically what you're pointing out is the scandal can work both ways yes? yeah. so that my obeying the law and probably in our context it's more likely in America sorry, to cause scandal than the scandal caused by seeming to undermine the government by disobeying so yes I think you're right so that scandal you need to think about who you're scandalizing, and whether... So scandal doesn't just mean somebody's upset. Scandal means leading somebody into sin by a bad example. Right. Yeah, uh, the reason I'm asking this question is that, like, uh, through my country history, like, uh, after uh, the genocide, um, the government, I'm saying the government, approaching the church to keep silent on like during the like the, the the violence that was taking place that the violence that ended into genocide so they say like the, the church did kept its silence um, and when I see uh, what was going on when I go back um, to like the church history in my country and the, the government, the, the church and the government relationship, the way they work together, um, it was like first like the church didn't have um, freedom of speech first first. Yeah. Like either you, you, you speak out the, the violence, you speak out the violence, you die, or you keep quiet, or you, it's like, um, and there was, sometimes I ask myself, like, what, what probably the church would have done, probably not just dying, because sometimes, uh, for example, I remember one time one bishop tried to speak out what was going on, and it's like the government tried to tried to stop any opportunities like that the church would grow. Like they couldn't allow to build even the church mm -hmm. in the diocese. Like they they made some instructions that would prohibit any like any development in the diocese. Like the church could the diocese couldn't build the church. They couldn't build the school. They couldn't build the hospital. And that's one of the things that helped the church to evangelize, for example, in my country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was almost the, the diocese on was almost going to just to shut down. Because like the government couldn't allow it actually to function right. as a diocese so and i realized that probably they just chose a little like kind of not speaking out what was going on to to see if they can allow them to keep functioning as a diocese but 
he does not even answer like the issue or he does not really it's not like the answer to answer to the problems but like what can one do in such difficult situation because like it's something that happens in the past yeah. and which is happening now yeah. like after the first government but the other government do like yeah. if you speak out something like if like a bishop speak out something long they don't allow the diocese to function. And if you can't function as a diocese, like the diocese shut, shuts down. So in that case, like what can be done, for example, as a pastor or as a bishop in the diocese in that context? I don't know enough of the history there to be giving a real answer. sometimes in history you know the church does get shut down because we make a stand and that that's part of this is almost normal church functioning that through history we do get persecuted we do get closed and I think you, the background point you were making about scandal that sometimes going along with a law is more of a scandal than resisting it and I think that's exactly what St. Thomas would be pointing out as well. I'm sorry, that's not an answer to your question. But I think you, in terms of the principles you're flagging up, you're, you're right to say these are, these are issues. Can I move us on to marriage? Um, those aren't good, good questions. Okay, so... Um, I'm not going to go through the rest of my notes here. I'm going to leave you to read through them. I do comment on the situation of a judge, so a Catholic judge being asked to implement an un-Catholic, an un unnatural law. And um, basically the judge has to... I think in our terminology, recuse himself. He can't pass a judgment one way or the other. It's not the judge's job to say this is a bad law, but he can say, I will refuse to pass judgment. So, and that's St. That's Thomas's analysis. Um, Top of page 11, just um, I think there's a very powerful phrase John Paul II uses in this context when he refers to laws about abortion and he says they are a caricature of legality. Yes, yeah, so that you do have a, a legal structure, but it's a caricature of legality. That because it's undermining the good of the individual who's being aborted or euthanized. Um, it's not a real law because it's contrary to the c common good. Um, so it's a caricature of legality and so we need to engage with it in that sense. This isn't a real law, it's a caricature of legality.
And he makes the point that in terms of the politician, that to be in favor of such a law and to vote for it is never permissible for a Catholic politician. And similarly, to campaign for such a law is never permissible morally for a Catholic. He doesn't spell out what would be the canonical penalties. So different bishops have said different things on that point, um, but he has made the point, you can't coherently be a Catholic and do that. That you are a united person. You can't be Catholic on a Sunday and something else the rest of the week. So your Catholic faith on a Sunday teaches you what reason is and you carry that through into your legal practice as a legislator all week long. Uh, let's spend uh, inside of 10 minutes just directly on the, the Benesid text. We've kind of talked around it in some of your comments already, but um, what do people have to, to throw in here? 